The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 179 is something like, can we talk about the mind in a way that is both scientific and also does justice to our everyday experiences? We read some chapters of William James' The Principles of Psychology from 1890 and its abridgment, Psychology, the Briefer Course from 1892. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, primarily my spiritual self above all other things in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin with an extremely limited span of consciousness in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey working up my attention in Middleton, Wisconsin. So the chapters we read for this, apart from some introductory material, were the ones on habit, the stream of consciousness, and the self. So those are the three primary topics that we'll be hitting right now. Who wants to introduce the book? It's a pragmatist, so I feel like it should be Dylan. <laughs> William James wrote The Psychology after having studied about it for about 12 years, published it in 1890, I think. And he thought there was so much work to go through that he came out with a thing called The Briefer Course not too long after, which we also read part of. But if you read it, you'll find that it's taken in large part from the psychology. I didn't go through to try to figure out if there were any substantive differences about them in the sense of the arguments being made as opposed to just mainly abridging them. In these three chapters, it appears not. They're not even that much in terms of abridgment. In terms of the whole book, there's like, you know, a whole chapter on hypnosis in the original one. Yes. Yes. This is the second time I've read through part of it, and I was once again surprised about how much of it just feels like stuff you would read now. It doesn't feel like it was written 120 years ago. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or or a bad thing, but uh, it was true. The one thing that is distinct about it, just in terms of the way it's written, is it is written like he's giving a lecture. So there's this kind of very personal and often side anecdote kind of aspect to it. So I find it very, very pleasing to read. In general, he's taking you through the process of thinking about psychology and what psychology is as a science, both in terms of talking about some of the history of it, but also trying to really set it off as its own thing. You will also, as Seth mentioned in being a pragmatist, you will realize very quickly that in his defense of how psychology is a science, that he is a pragmatist because his argument is a pragmatic argument for how to interpret and understand psychology as a science. So he's trying to establish in this book a distinct subdivision of philosophy that is psychology. And he, of course, notes that there have been lots of psychologists, and he quotes a lot of them at great length. He has no problem putting in long quotes and attributing, say, good portions of his insights in this habit chapter that we're going to talk about to other writers and just quoting them verbatim. He does talk quite a bit, especially in some of these introductory chapters. One of the ones we looked at was in Principles, The Methods and Snares of Psychology, which he talks about different psychological methods and also in his intro, which, you know, we've had psychology like in Locke and Hume, for instance. But as we've covered in our phenomenology episodes earlier, you know, let's start talking about the fundamental unit of psychology being the idea. And James thinks, as we'll get into, that that runs very much counter to actual experience. So we had been very familiar with 
the phenomenologists and talked about them on past episodes as giving a more accurate account of our actual experiences. But yet here's William James, a good 10 years at least, before any of these folks, before Husserl is talking about this kind of stuff. And to me, it it felt like there was just as much insight packed into what William James is doing here than we had with those folks, perhaps even more so because he wasn't concerned with developing this crazy new vocabulary. When folks like Locke and Hume have started talking about this, they get tied up in epistemology. This is why psychology was not distinguished from philosophy, because they are very concerned with, do the ideas in our minds correspond to things outside? And he's just going to say, we're just going to assume that. That's just what the scientific method has to assume. It doesn't mean that it's for sure true. In fact, he hints that he has a lot of sympathy towards different forms of idealism, but he thinks that you can do psychology just setting those things aside, and then a future science that blends all the different sciences together, a metaphysics, would have to eventually deal with those hard questions, and that would in turn change the understanding in this book, but he's setting it aside. So, just the way I put that, that's very much sounds like what Husserl was trying to do, but Husserl invented this term bracketing and said, you know, because we want our language to not actually imply that the things are in the outside world, we just want to talk purely about the phenomena, (laughs) whereas James just, let's just not consider that question right now. It's worth also pointing out that he is very focused and concerned about the physicality of the body and the brain and understanding it as being an important part of our understanding of our psychology. And that, I think, probably goes hand in hand with this bracketing part. They're not so worried about the philosophical correspondences in an epistemological way, but in a pragmatic way. And then that way, it's having a structure of inquiry and figuring out and then revising it along the way and acknowledging that's going to happen. I just think along the lines of the emphasis on the relationship to the brain and to the body is it does for him, it it affects the nature of the inquiry. So when he's objecting to the idea of a soul with faculties as an explanation, the faculties are kind of the brute facts of your psychology and there's no more explanation behind that. So he asks, this is in the introduction of the principles of psychology, why should this absolute God-given faculty retain so much better the events of yesterday than those of last year and best of all those of an hour ago? And then he goes on with a bunch of examples. And you can see how, of course, studying the brain would be able to answer those sorts of questions where philosophically, you're just not going to be able to provide an answer for that type of question. At the conclusion of that paragraph, he says, evidently, then the faculty does not exist absolutely, but works under conditions. And the quest of the conditions becomes a psychologist's most interesting task. I think that's a big part of what distinguishes his approach to psychology from a purely philosophical approach that comes before it, even though it's still a very philosophical approach, but he relies on the stuff he's read about the brain and lots of other stuff for his reflections. But of course, he's not doing that science himself. So it's still a sort of meta-level reflection on that sort of data, but he's going to take it into account. Although he does say, it's easy to learn about brain physiology. Here, go cut open a sheep. What's fascinating about this for me was that it has the feel of what we would consider phenomenology, but he uses the term psychology in the way that maybe Nietzsche would. So he's this weird bridge, and he's not Nietzschean in any obvious sense, but at the same time talks about being a psychologist and connecting it to philosophy in a way that reminds one of Nietzsche. But his whole methodology feels very phenomenological. So when I first started reading this, I was asking myself, 
why were we reading this for the partially examined life? Yes, it's something that you read at St. John's, but does it really fit in? And as I became seduced by his rhetoric and his style, which I think is not inappropriately described as seductive, it's as if you're walking down a path with somebody and then you suddenly turn around and realize you don't know where you are anymore and he's taking you on a journey. I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. And without explicitly talking about philosophical subjects, so there is a section where he talks about like the ethics of habit and a few other things, he gets extremely deep and extremely interesting around consciousness and the self, but you don't set out on a journey. It's not the phenomenology of spirit. It's not being in time. It's not the analytic of design. It's not the analysis of self-consciousness. You're just talking about the way people are, and the next thing you know, you're caught up in the challenge of the self as knower and the self as known. And I have to say, I was initially resistant and very quickly <laughs> came around to being seduced. So I do want us to, before we get into the juicy stuff, talk very briefly about methodology. This is why I added this chapter seven of uh, principles of psychology. This is one that's not in the abridgment, the methods and snares of psychology. Just to distinguish, James is often known as being part of, the forerunner of, I'm not exactly clear his historical status. I thought he was like a leading figure, certainly, in introspective psychology, that that's what people were doing at the turn of the century. And that's something that has fallen very far out of favor, that that's not rigorously scientific. And it's funny that he is specifically trying to make psychology into a science, and yet he's using this thing. Well, he himself says he's bridging the introspective method with the alternative, right? He talks about the experimental method as the alternative, and he has some very amusingly disparaging things to say about it. There's a subsection called the experimental method. The experimental method, but psychology is passing into a less simple phase. Within a few years, what one may call a microscopic psychology has arisen in Germany, carried on by experimental methods, asking, of course, every moment for introspective data, but eliminating their uncertainty by operating on a large scale and taking statistical means. This method that takes patience to the utmost and could hardly have arisen in a country whose natives could be bored. Such Germans as Weber, Fechner, Verho, etc. obviously cannot, and their success has brought into the field an array of younger experimental psychologists bent on studying the elements of the mental life, dissecting them from out of the gross result in which they are embedded, and as far as possible, reducing them to quantitative scales. The simple and open method of attack having done what it can, the method of patience, starving out and harassing to death is tried. The mind must submit to a regular siege in which minute advantages gained night and day by the forces that hem her in must sum themselves up at last into her overthrow. There is little of the grand style about these new prism, pendulum, and chronograph philosophers. They mean business, not chivalry. What generous divination and that superiority in virtue which was taught by Cicero to give a man the best insight into nature have failed to do, their spying and scraping, their deadly tenacity, and almost diabolic cunning will doubtless someday bring about. So do we think what he's describing there probably has little relation to experimental psychology of today? Or, I mean, it does sound like when you do psychological experiments based on giving surveys, say, what you're doing for the most part is asking people to introspect. That's not what was going on in the uh, observing behavior, which seems to be what more of them do. But it seems like introspection, whether it's called that or not, self-reporting is still a necessary component. 
but quantifiable, supposedly quantifiable in introspection, like rate your enjoyment on a scale of one to 10. And even in the Milgram, where it was observing, well, it was observing quantitatively, you know, how high did they turn the dial? There's always this attempt to quantify, even when it's obvious that the information that you're trying to get is qualitative. It's, you know, you're getting something that's a matter of degree. It's not something that can be measured with scientific precision. I mean, there are clear limitations to the experimental method because of the, like I think, Mark, as you're pointing out, there's something, still something inherently introspective, even if you're trying to, you know, because it's psychology, it's not like doing particle physics where the subjects of your experiment aren't themselves conscious and you're not trying to peer inside their minds. So psychology is inherently problematic because of the nature of consciousness, I think. It's kind of a subject of discussion today, right? With the number of badly designed psychological experiments that can't be replicated and the bloat of all these studies going into journals. So it's been kind of a scandal recently. I mean, it's problems in the sciences in general, but I think psychology especially, because of the nature of those experiments. At the end of this, he does say, so it's not the hybrid method, he calls it the comparative method, which he says supplements the introspective and experimental methods. This method presupposes a normal psychology of introspection to be established in its main features, but where the origin of these features or their dependence upon one another is in question, it is of the utmost importance to trace the phenomenon considered through all of its possible variations of type and combination. So it has come to pass that the instincts of animals are ransacked to throw light on our own, and that the reasoning faculties of bees and ants, the minds of savages... Infants, madmen, idiots, the deaf and blind, criminals and eccentrics, <laughs> I like the fact that eccentrics make their way in there, are all invoked in support of this or that special theory about some part of our own mental life. So he's not saying he uses the comparative method, right? He's saying his method is the comparative method, I think. That's the impression I got at the beginning of the chapter. He's contrasting these two different methods, and then he's saying he's... So maybe I'm wrong about that, but... Yeah, no, I, I don't think too, so. Um, I think that there, he's giving, here's the, sort of the three that are in use around, and he's not, as far as I can see, saying, and this is mine. You know, he's, he's talked about what he's going to do, but there's a paragraph on the comparative method. It supplements the introspective and experimental method. And he's really talking about the influence of Darwin, among others. He says, Mr. Darwin and Galton have set the example of circulars of questions sent out by the hundred to those supposed able to reply. That doesn't sound like William James's method. Well, read on from that, because it's, it's funny. The custom has spread, and it will be well for us in the next generation if such circulars be not ranked among the common pests of life. Meanwhile, information grows and results emerge. There are great sources of error in the comparative method. The interpretation of the psychoses of animals, savages, and infants is necessarily wild work, in which the personal equation of the investigator has things very much its own way. A savage will be reported to have no moral or religious feelings if his actions shock the observer unduly. A child will be assumed without self-consciousness because he talks of himself in the third person, etc., etc. No rules can be laid down in advance. Comparative observations to be definite must usually be made to test some pre-existing hypothesis. The only thing, then, is to use as much sagacity as you possess to be as candid as you can. There's nothing in what we read that looks like this comparative method at all. Yeah, I guess I'm wrong about that. I'm confusing his... The hybrid. The briefer course where he's going at the empiricists and the rationalists. So in this section on method, I took him to be pointing out there being problems with the whole dedication to essentially one method or another. And just like in the first chapter, 
he has this distinction between associationist and spiritualist views of psychology. He takes you on a characterization of both and then a questioning of both and ends up, for lack of a better term, coming up with a sort of a pragmatic stance that there's some parts of either that are valuable and it's going to be messy and we're going to sort of do our best with it. Towards the end of the section in chapter seven, in the methods of investigation, he has this quote from Sully, and this is a comment on introspection. He ends up concluding, we need not anticipate our own future details, but just state our general conclusion that introspection is difficult and fallible, and that the difficulty is simply that of all observation of whatever kind. Something is before us. We do our best to tell what it is, but in spite of our goodwill, we may go astray and give a description more applicable to some other sort of thing. The only safeguard is in the final consensus of our farther knowledge about the thing in question, later views correcting earlier ones, until at last the harmony of a consistent system is reached. Such a system, gradually worked out, is the best guarantee the psychologist can give for the soundness of any particular psychological observation which he may report. Such a system we ourselves must strive, as far as may be, to attain. You know, we've almost, between the bunch of us saying, we've almost voiced this argument between the rejecting both the spiritualist and the associationist school. Let's just spell that out quick so we can just get it out of the way. Yeah, so in the spiritualist account, the most natural and consequently the easiest way of unifying the material was first to classify it as well as might be, as in psychological states, and secondly, to affiliate the diverse mental modes thus found upon a simple entity, the personal soul. Another, and a less, just skipping down a little bit, and a less obvious way of unifying the chaos is to see common elements in the diverse mental facts rather than a common agent behind them, and to explain them constructively by the various forms of arrangement of these elements as one explains houses by stones and bricks. So that's, you have the spiritualist and the associationist, respectively. The associationist schools of Herbart in Germany and of Hume, the Mills, and Bain in Britain have thus constructed a psychology without a soul by taking discrete ideas, faint or vivid, and showing how, by their cohesions, repulsions, and forms of succession, such things as reminiscences, perceptions, emotions, volitions, passions, theories, and all the other furnishings of an individual's mind may be engendered. The very self or ego of the individual comes in this way to be viewed no longer as the pre-existing source of the representations, but rather as their last and most complicated fruit. So that last line is what I thought was a very, very clear way of explaining all of this. The self is sort of underneath and responsible for all these different ideas, to use that lingo, or the ideas themselves as sort of the material out of which the self or the ego of the soul is built. Yes. And he goes on and, you know, those first few paragraphs, I mean, Wes just read from the very first paragraph of the psychology. The next paragraphs are sort of going back and forth on the associationist and the spiritualist view. So he has criticisms for both, right? And I mentioned yep. the faculty criticism. So what's his criticisms of the associationists? It's basically that there's no explanation of why the idea is associated in the way they do, right? We need the brain to do that. The associationist must introduce the order of experience to the outer world. The dance of ideas is a copy, somewhat mutilated and altered, of the order of phenomena. But the slightest reflection shows that phenomena have absolutely no power to influence our ideas until they have first impressed our senses and our brain. 
The bare existence of a past fact is no ground for our remembering it. Unless we have seen it or somehow undergone it, we shall never know of its having been. The experiences of the body are thus one of the conditions for the faculty of memory being used. And the delirium of fever, the altered self of insanity, all are due to foreign matter circulating through the brain or pathological changes in that organ substance. The fact that the brain is the one immediate bodily condition of the mental operations is indeed so universally admitted nowadays that I need spend no more time in illustrating it, but simply postulate it and pass on. The whole remainder of the book will more or less be a proof that the postulate was correct. So I think the previous paragraph is helpful as well. So the pure associationist account of our mental life is almost as bewildering as that of the pure spiritualist. The multitude of ideas existing absolutely, yet clinging together, and weaving an endless carpet of themselves, like dominoes and ceaseless change, or the bits of glass in a kaleidoscope, whence do they get their fantastic laws of clinging, and why do they cling in just the shapes they do? So in a way, it's just as sort of inexplicable as the, it's just simply postulating a faculty, postulating association. It's where that sort of concentration on the body and the brain can shed some more light. So you might think that introspection is a crummy method because there are no rules to introspection, that you just say, I'm introspecting and I have a desire that's such and such, I have a belief that's such and such, and then you kind of make up chains between them. And so it was the whole point of phenomenology is to say, no, 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 we're going to be careful. <laughs> well, William James can be careful without invoking phenomenology or any of its weird vocabulary. He can just say, yeah, you might have thought, like Locke did, that our psychology is made up of these recurrent ideas. The idea of blue comes into my mind, and then later, I think blue again, that idea of blue pops up. And James thinks that if you actually analyze pay attention to your experience, it's clearly not that way. <laughs> that experience comes in a stream. You just have a lot of stuff. It's, it's buzzing, blooming confusion. And we, well, he doesn't want to say even that we abstract out these little things. Like he doesn't jump forward with terminology like that. But clearly, it's a matter of analysis to think about blue in isolation of the things that are blue. And in fact, every time you have an individual thought of blue, if you then think of blue a day later, it's not going to be exactly the same thought, right? It's a different experience. Now I'm thinking of blue while sitting in a chair and thinking of blue as I have just had these other thoughts that were not of blue before that. I'm picking up my book, whatever. Everything else that's going on in your experience is going to affect that particular thought that you're having. And then the next day, if you say, well, let me, let me have another thought of blue and compare that with my previous one. The very fact that you're comparing it with your previous one makes it obviously a different thought. Like it's just, it's always a different thought. And if you want to say it has the same content, that's totally fine. Like he also just wants to buy this intentionality, the fact that our thoughts are often about something external, about, and again, he's just going to say it's about the external world. Whether or not ultimately metaphysically there really is blue out in the world, that's the way we talk. That's the way we think about it. And that's the assumption that we're going to have methodologically as we're going forward. So if you want to talk about what makes a thought of blue now and a thought of blue later the same? Well, it's because they're both about blue. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Have you moved on to the stream of consciousness chapter or you were... I guess so. Well, he, was, he, was, he was definitely jumping into it. I just thought as relevant to talking about associationism, this little argument against associationism that we just gave takes up a big chunk in a different form in that stream of consciousness chapter that you might have thought that 
because there are 52 cards in a deck of cards that our idea of deck of cards has 52 elements in it. And that's kind of the thing an associationist might say. But no, no, it's just, it's the thought of a deck of cards. <laughs> that's a distinctly different thought than a thought of the jack of clubs plus the ace of spades. Plus, in fact, you couldn't even have. The whole is more than the sum of the parts in this case. And just thinking about methodology, I mean, what you're pointing to is that he's analyzing our experience and has been observed. It feels like the kind of way of we've seen in previously on the podcast, but after James, as a phenomenologist would do. But it is really, I guess, being analytical in a just sort of uh, typical way. I mean, without trying to make analytical a big capital A or anything like that. Reflecting and analyzing experience and seeing if it makes sense. And there are a couple of presuppositions in there. And one of them we were just talking about is having to do with being a cerebralist, which is that whatever it is that the psychology is, it's rooted in our physicality. There may be abstractable structure to it, but it is held and produced and interacts with the world through our physicality, through our brains and through our bodies. And I think both the associationist and the spiritualist views run afoul of that in that the spiritualist view is that there's some other thing, whether you call it a soul or whatever, that is the housing of our mental faculty. And in the associationist, there in some ways has to be that as well, that is taking these ideas and pulling them together that are abstracted from the interaction of the world with our bodies. So in a funny way, they both commit a similar sin. Well, he's using this holism about the stream of consciousness and experience you know he wants to say you can't really have the same idea twice right he uses the brain as that's one of his arguments he says every sensation corresponds to some cerebral action this is on page 156 for an identical sensation to occur it would have to occur the second time in an unmodified brain so the the context you know as mark was mentioning the fact that any given idea happens within that's like saying, you know, from our previous episodes that our experiences, our perceptions are theory laden. The theory here is all the different contexts of the stuff at the edges, that's the fringes that's connected to that idea that changes its something like a connotation, right? Changes that as alike it is, our experience of the blue thing is to the previous experience, it's still not exactly the same, just even because we had that previous experience changed a brain pathway and if that pathway is now being reignited the fact that it's been reinforced right changes that mental state you could read sellers like the day after you read this book there are other ways in which it reminded me as well yeah people can listen to our wilfred sellers episode to figure out what that reference is about because we don't want to take time to explain it well for sellers right the idea was that there was you couldn't have just a given yeah, you couldn't experience the world or interpret it without having some framework for interpreting it. And that is like explicitly part of one of the sections in James, yep. that our abstractions about the world involve a theory about the world. He doesn't say the word theory, but you have to have a framework for it. And there's this iterative process for doing that as well. Not surprisingly, he has a pragmatic interpretation of how our brain works. 
So his rejection of these atomistic ideas is something like exactly. the rejection of the given. Yeah. Exactly. That's a nice, succinct way to put it. But I like this chapter, this very well-organized chapter on the stream of consciousness. The four. Oh, it's a great chapter. So we get this organization into four different characters of consciousness. Are you looking at the briefer version, or are you looking at the... I'm looking at the, the briefer course. So the first one is that every state tends to be a part of a personal consciousness. Within each personal consciousness, states are changing, always changing. Each personal consciousness is sensibly continuous and is interested in some parts of its object to the exclusion of others. It chooses, that's the attention. And welcomes or rejects, chooses from among them in a word all the while. Can I just point out, I just like the online version of principles better than the uh, briefer course. So even though I read the briefer course, when I went back to take notes, I did it in the principles on these chapters because, you know, they were like 90% the same. And interestingly, this initial outline, what's going to go on in the chapter, there's a fifth one that is number four in the principles. It always appears to deal with objects independent of itself. So why he thought better of that, you know, that's just the point about intentionality that I was just making, that it seems that there's always an object. Well, maybe it's just that it's less simple than that. And <laughs> He sort of covers that in the introduction, right, in this. Okay. Maybe he's shifted it and cut it out for the sake of not repeating himself, or I don't know. Well, let's go through the four, anyway. So the personal consciousness. We fall asleep in a bed together, wake up the next morning, I don't wake up as you and you don't wake up as me. Yes. <laughs> my thoughts belong with my other thoughts, and your thoughts belong with your other thoughts. Absolute insulation, irreducible pluralism is the law. He has a way he characterizes this, where he says, thought is owned, that I quite liked. It seems as if the elementary psychic fact were not thought, or this thought, or that thought, but my thought, every thought being owned. Irreducible pluralism is the law. So I'm trying to think about exactly the connection between that and the point we were making before about how even if you have a thought of blue one day and a thought of blue the next day, they're not the same. Those would seem to follow as well here. So you might think even if we're both thinking about blue or we're both thinking about the opera or something, we're going to have different connotations. They're going to be qualitatively different. But it seems over and beyond that, in the individual, it's because the brain state at time T and brain state at time T1 are different brain states. Well, it certainly would follow then that my idea and your idea, however much we try to picture the same scene or we're witnessing the same act, are going to be different given that we have different brains. But it's got to be even more fundamental than that. It's not just that they're qualitatively different, it's they're numerically different, right? Yeah, exactly. It's that you can't escape the idea, in his view, that my thought and your thought. It's not even having the discussion. The point is, is that thought, thought the way we understand it. And again, I don't think he's positing something ontologically here or metaphysically, but he's basically saying the way that we talk about and understand thought is that we think of it as being my thought or your thought. We don't think of thought as an abstract. So he says, Neither contemporaneity, nor proximity in space, nor similarity of quality and content are able to fuse thoughts together which are sundered by this barrier of belonging to different personal minds. The breaches between such thoughts are the most absolute breaches in nature. Yep. So that goes to Mark's numerical difference thing, which is really, really important. 
So when we do a podcast on personal identity one day, this will be a big subject of that. Because you might think, for instance, right, that if you could clone me in the full sense, if you could put me in a machine and make a replica of me, which is in principle possible, the technology should exist one day, right? Just to create an exact physical replica of me and my brain. I have the same personality, all the same habits and types of thoughts and all all of that stuff. But what James is saying and what you just read, Seth, is that we're not structuralists about this. It's not that if I have two Wesses with exactly the same sorts of brain states going on simultaneously, that that would be one person, that those two sets of thoughts would somehow, even if they were exactly right, if it wasn't just a replica of my body, but a replica of my stream of consciousness that were entirely synchronized in the other Wes with my stream of consciousness. Even if that were to happen, um, that part is actually not really possible in principle for James, but even if it were, there would still be two different persons. There would be a numerical difference, and it's not simply the structure and quality of the thoughts or even the overall person or character that defines identity. And if I kill off one of them, I've killed off one stream of consciousness, and that person doesn't survive in my continued existence. I think I agree with that, but at the same time, it it feels like you're complicating it. That feels like an artificial distinction relative to what James is trying to get to, where he says a little further on in that same paragraph, the universal conscious fact is not feelings and thoughts exist, but I think and I feel. No psychology at any rate can question the existence of personal selves. The worst a psychology can do is so to interpret the nature of these selves as to rob them of their worth. I don't think he's abstracting in some way where he's making that claim about numerical selves and whatever. I think no, he's, he, he he's, is making that claim very explicitly. Like, well, he might be making – my point is, is that this falls back on the phenomenological approach, saying that if we are going to undertake an examination of our experience of consciousness – our experience of consciousness is that it is always owned. There is always a personal self. And I would just say that that simplifies right, it. Right, but we have to give a criterion of the difference between different personal selves. And we have to think about this in a sort of expansive way. In some sense, it seems common sense that I don't simply wake up with your thoughts and you don't wake up with mine, that there's an impermeable barrier. But if you think about it, it actually becomes kind of confusing why that's so. And what those thought experiments, which we'll talk about in future podcasts, try to highlight is the fact that no matter how qualitatively similar our streams of consciousness are, that doesn't undo the barrier. That's really the whole point of that thought experiment, that we simply have two numerically different streams of consciousness, and they are radically separated. And sameness in structure, sameness in the types of thoughts we have, that's not the point. That's really what I'm trying to say. The difference is numerical difference. There end up being sort of two competing things going on. One is that unity, which is the numerical difference that Wes is pointing to, and this universal conscious fact that I think and I feel that is a characteristic of that unity of a stream of consciousness in the primary way in which we say that's a one thing. 
immediately after this, he begins to emphasize the fact that the consciousness is in a constant change. And so that within a stream of consciousness, there is nothing but a kind of constant sequence of things. So he then raises the problem of, if I look at that, how is it that the fact that there is a unity becomes a little bit more problematic, that what is connecting one thing to another, one experience to another, because each of those experiences, each of those states is unique, right? The experience of whether it be the perception of blue or love or hate or reading a book and reading it today and reading the same page tomorrow, none of those things are the same. And so the, there becomes a question of what it means to talk about sameness that also reflects that unity. Yeah, and I think he gets more into that on the chapter on the self, which is another puzzle, which is like, why isn't it even from thought to thought that I'm a brand new I with that? How could you possibly carry that over from one moment to another? That's the temporal part of thing as opposed to the, the spatial or numerical difference. But Yeah. Yeah, that second part of the consciousness is in constant change gets at the point Mark was making earlier that I think that we've all made by now, which is that we don't have the same experience twice or mental state twice. And what really can recur is the same object. We hear the same note over and over again or the same quality of green, but we don't have the exact same ideas or experiences of those things. The quote says, the entire history of sensation is a commentary on our inability to tell whether two sensations received apart are exactly alike. And I thought when I read that, I wrote, Denet Contra Qualia, that in our initial <laughs> philosophy of mind episode, he's arguing against the idea of qualia, and that's, you know, that there's red feel now or something like that. I don't know that it's essential to talk about quality to, to say red feel now is the same as red feel later or something like that. But just the fact that those are sort of the basic units Anyway, the more I talk about this, the more complicated the relationship between the two things is. So I'll just leave it at that. So Mark, even though we have numerically distinct streams of consciousness, I knew when I was reading this that you were thinking about Dennett <laughs> while reading this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking about someone like Dennett or practically any other philosopher you'd read. I want to just read another section on this. It gives to me a nice flavor of the wonderful way in which this book is written. So it's towards the end of this section. The beginning of the paragraph is, it is obvious and palpable that our state of mind is never precisely the same. Every thought we have of a given fact is strictly speaking unique and only bears a resemblance of kind with our other thoughts of the same fact. Often we ourselves struck at the strange differences in our successive views of the same thing. We wonder how ever we could have opined as we did last month about a certain matter. We've outgrown the possibility of that state of mind. We know not how. From one year to another, we see things in new lights. What was unreal has grown real. What was exciting is insipid. The friends we used to care the world for are shrunk into shadows. The women once divine, the stars, the woods, and the waters. How now so dull and common. The hungry girls that brought an aura of infinity at present hardly distinguishable existences. The pictures so empty. And as for the books... What was there to find so mysteriously significant in Goethe or in John Mill so full of weight? Instead of all this, more zestful than ever is the work, the work, and the fuller, deeper, the import of common duties and common goods. Isn't that just an ode to getting old? <laughs> yes. Well. I put three asterisks next to that last part about Goethe and Mill and, <laughs> and the work. That is such a great line. The more zestful than ever is the work, the work. But yeah, I thought of, wow, this is about getting old when the newness and the intensity of things has faded. 
you do become more focused on work in a way. Yeah. The experiences that you get sort of passively and even mentioning Goethe and Mill, I thought, you know, like my relationship to books like this at St. John's was much, much different. It was almost like a religious, which I know is weird, but intense religious experience. But now in light of having read way too much philosophy for way too many years, it's for him, the experience has been damped down considerably, as enjoyable as it is. And what kind of textbook has that kind of memoir aspect to it, where you're learning something about the author in that way? Yeah. So it is funny that how the quote to other kinds of talk ratio in this episode has been way higher than even in Nietzsche, perhaps. I don't know. Nietzsche is, you end up just reading a bunch of quotes, and that's almost all the whole discussion. But uh, James could have had his own podcast. Let's just James's writing is so so wonderful that it's very tempting to do that. Can we, without necessarily reading another quote, can we say <laughs> what the main insights that we haven't really spelled out exactly in the stream of consciousness chapter are? I mean, well, I think we have to get to the continuousness part. Yes. And the next section is no atomic thoughts. He says that there are two aspects that feels continuous. That even if there is a time gap, it feels like there wasn't one. And moment-to-moment changes are never absolutely abrupt. So there's never a jump cut. So even after we go to sleep, there's not a lack of continuity. You might think, well, look, that's a break in consciousness. It is in some sense, of course, a break. But it's not a break in continuity. You don't wake up thinking, wait, who am I? And if you go to bed with Peter, you don't end up thinking Peter's thoughts, right? Exactly. So <laughs> well, that just sounds like an awesome short story, an awesome movie, right? <laughs> Where this happens. Gregor Samsa awoke thinking Peter's <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of a twist on the body switching ones. I mean, there's there are you know, movies and stories where you know your whole conscious, your whole identity is switched into another body, and then how that affects you. And but to cut splice your consciousness into someone else's that doesn't happen well so it's interesting how james doesn't use thought experiments like this this is kind of the thing that philosophers rely on to test our intuitions is to immediately jump to what if i isolated this thing and this thing what if we had two brains that were exactly the same would they have the same and i don't think that kind of thought experiment is even available to james as creative as he is and as wide-ranging in the kinds of questions that he asks and the way that he asks them i think that's not one of the kinds he gives two kind of answers of why peter's thoughts remain peter's and paul's thoughts remain paul's one is they're connected to different brains that's obvious <laughs> and the other one is and so you might think of this in terms of the Cartesian question, like this is kind of initially where it came up for us, is uh, Descartes thinks that, look, I'm, I'm observing the stream of thoughts. There must be something that has the stream, therefore there is a me. Well, James is going to agree with that, but not really. Like he doesn't want you to then reify the me or the I and say, there's this thing that's outside of any particular experience that has all the experiences. But at the same time, we already said that thoughts come as owned. The way Sartre puts it is that even if you're not explicitly thinking of the me, of the thing that has the thoughts, there's sort of a, at the fringe of your awareness, there's this I-ness is always kind of hanging around. And so that would be a thing that for William James, he could also say that. So that if you then reflect at any given time, like, oh, you, you could summon up self-consciousness. It doesn't mean that there's always self-consciousness, but by saying every thought comes as owned, 
that is saying something about the fringe of the thought. Well, he calls it warmth and intimacy. So it's not the case that I'm always saying the word I to myself or thinking, hey, I'm the same person and connecting that conscious thought to my given thought. It happens at the fringes in the sense that it happens below the level of awareness, the sense of identity. It doesn't happen at necessarily below the level of awareness. Conscious awareness in the sense of I am saying I am a single unified self, the same as I was years ago or whatever. I'm going to read Go ahead, the past thought of Peter. This is the Peter and Paul in the same bed. They go to sleep and Peter doesn't wake up with Paul's past and Paul doesn't wake up with Peter's. The past thought of Peter is appropriated by the present Peter alone. He may have a knowledge and a correct one too of what Paul's last drowsy states of mind were as he sank into sleep but it is an entirely different sort of knowledge from that which he has of his own last states. He remembers his own states whilst he only conceives Paul's. Remembrance is like a direct feeling. Its object is suffused with a warmth and intimacy to which no object of mere conception ever attains. Yeah, so what does it mean to say it's my memory as opposed to Paul's conception, right? What distinguishes those two states? I think warmth and intimacy is the key thing here. And immediacy. Well, that's just a way of characterizing it. Obviously, a conception and a immediate experience are totally different. It's not just a matter of feeling warm about something. The warmth and intimacy, it's meant to get at the directness. So, the, you know, I think yes. Dylan's word immediacy is good. It's, you tell me about what you did yesterday. You went for a bicycle ride, and I conceive of that. Obviously, I don't suddenly have the experience of that or even the memory of the experience. You could call it up in an entirely different way. I can imagine what it's like. I can go pretty far. And I've been on bike rides before, obviously. Maybe you tell me you did a route that I've done in the past. So what's the difference there? I think that warmth and intimacy phrase, I think that's what he's trying to capture. The difference between my conception of what you did yesterday and your remembrance of it, that's the critical distinction. That's what makes it yours. That's the indication that it's owned. And we probably shouldn't push too far further into that because we didn't read the chapter on memory. Because, like, you know, if you hear a story about you know, something that happened to you when you were a kid, you know, you might not even remember, or you know, he, he acknowledges we misremember stuff all the time. So, like, you could be told a story enough about your brother that you think that it happened to you. You're, like, both confused, that you both think that that thing happened to you. So clearly, there are limits you don't have the warmth and intimacy with distant memories in that way at all. But the point is that just like with Locke's thing, that it's the continuity that counts. So what makes it the story of the self is that I remember stuff in the past. And in the past, during those times, I remember the previous stuff. And so the consistency of memory, the fact that the past experience lingers onto the new one. And he also says that the upcoming experience, like we, we anticipate. So that there's just all these things that overlap that are in the fringes of whenever we're thinking about. And that's what makes the continuity. This is one of the really innovative things about James and it, it's part of his pragmatism. This emphasis on phrases like the warmth and the intimacy and the fringe and all that stuff, I think it's really insightful and important. So if I were Kant and I was trying to explain the continuousness, the, the sort of the way we maintain identity over time, I might say something like, you have to have the capacity to accompany it by the representation, I think, or something like something very abstract like that, which doesn't get at the immediate experience of all of this. So I think Warmth and intimacy is really important. And you could do the thought experiment. 
and I think this is in principle possible, you know, if you had some sort of brain injury, what if my past experiences, when I remembered them, actually were more like conceptions? What if I didn't have that warmth and intimacy? But what's important to me is there's something actually psychological about this. There's something actually about subjective experience, which creates this connective tissue of identity. We don't just fall back on abstractions like a substantial soul or something like that to explain what stays the same under all the changes. It's sort of written into the structure of the changes, how they're connected. This is the anti-Husserl. Well, and he does actually talk about disorders that he's familiar with, like dissociative identity disorders, which he also, you know, kind of always mixes that kind of talk with talk about automatic writing and spiritualism in terms of psychic phenomena was a very big thing at this time. You know, there is a whole chapter on hypnotism. You know, I think he refers to, yeah, okay, so you might have a memory of something you did in the past, but if you have dissociative identity disorder and you're in one of your other personalities that it somehow is connected to that, you might not have that warmth and intimacy. Well, he's going to say like, well, that's your secondary self. And that's kind of a fringe thing that doesn't come up that much. He doesn't want to worry about that in most of his discussion. But I think that is the kind of, I was just saying that he doesn't like to use philosopher weird abstractions, but he's totally fine using real life weird exceptional circumstances in which these things might be torn apart in much the same way that psychologists do today. It's interesting. I mean, even though he sort of puts a disclaimer in the beginning saying this isn't really about abnormal psychology, right? I'm not going to be going into that stuff. He does remarkably often appeal to what he's read about all that stuff about the (laughs) madmen to use his language. So I think he would say it would have to be a different self, right? If you didn't have the warmth and intimacy, even if you remember it. I think we could jump ahead to that end of the chapter on the self at some point because that's where that is. I'd have to look at that again. I just skimmed that because that was part of what we weren't reading. Just to finish the thought about Descartes, you might think that either it's the I owns all this, and or even the way I was putting it, that the I is, even as a fringe thing present in all of this, we're saying that maybe that's too strong for James. But he also doesn't think you might react, say, oh, Descartes wasn't actually, I think, therefore I am. That doesn't actually make sense. All you can say is, there are thoughts. And you can't conclude anything about an I at all. So that's one way we were interpreting Sartre initially in our first episode on him is, is maybe he had made that jump just because he wasn't positing a spiritual self that he must have thought that they're just kind of free floating thoughts. But I think James is actually getting at the correct happy medium between the two of these, that there is a self that is defined by the continuity of experience, but we can't say anything about it as an object of experience over and above just the actual experience we have of it. It doesn't mean that we all have souls. Yeah, he has a great term for it right in the section we're at. He calls it the community of self. The community of self is what the time gap cannot break in twain. I just love that phrase because that it, gives you, yeah. it gives you that unity in a community, but it gives you that multiplicity, right? I just think it's fantastic. Yep. And it's not a community of selves. It's a community <laughs> no, of self. That would be the dissociative identity disorder. In fact, I just, <laughs> I just watched the movie Split, so I have this very <laughs> clearly in my head. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard that is worth watching, though. We are the horde. The horde. Are you recommending? Are you, are you uh, recommending it's, the it's movie? It's fine, or? sure. Okay. That's a rousing endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. That sounds like a good place to wrap up part one. 
Why don't we come back next week and talk about the self and about habit and anything else we feel like bringing up from here. You actually don't have to wait. You can become a partially examined life citizen and hear the whole thing right now, ad-free. So talk to you next week or in a few minutes.